Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Trade Coffee. Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com slash missionlog. To get started, take their quiz at drinktrade.com slash missionlog and start your journey to your perfect cup. That's drinktrade.com slash missionlog for $20 off your first three bags. This episode of Mission Log is also sponsored by Collide. Got Slack? Got Max? Get Collide, device security that fixes challenging problems by messaging your users on Slack. Try Collide today. Try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 439, time and again. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, sometimes more than one time, and again, to delve deeply in order to explore the morals, meanings, and messages. This week, time and again. The one where the Voyager crew did that one thing, that one time, and again, because they had to make sure all the time puns we're in this episode. We'll discuss all that and more as soon as Norman tells all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. So here we are, that sacred time, and again, with John Champion, with this week's trivia. I love how you did that. Very clever. All right. Trivia for today's episode. The story is by David Kemper, and this is the last in just a handful of story credits David has on Star Trek. In fact, you have to go pretty far back to find his others. He submitted the stories for TNG's Peak Performance and The Enemy in that show's second and third seasons, respectively. We have a teleplay here by David Kemper and Michael Piller. So as you can imagine, Michael Piller really pulled it together based on David's story notes. And the attempt here was to do a bottle show. More on that in a moment. This episode is directed by Les Landau. No surprise here to see Les's name early in a new Trek series. He was around for so much of TNG, going back to the pilot where he was first AD, then on to directing with the Schizoid Man. He also totaled 14 episodes of DS9, and we will see him here on Voyager eight more times. 
All right, I mentioned that this was kind of an attempt here to do, well, not really a bottle show, but at least an attempt to uh, rein in the budget a little bit. So let's talk about location filming. It's probably not that hard, not much of a surprise to tell you that there are some very conventional locations and uh, they're very recognizable, including the Tillman Water Reclamation Plant, which has served as part of Starfleet Academy in the past, and its Japanese garden is where we've seen Boothby and other Trek characters hanging out. This time we're seeing different angles on that building, and we've got a really good matte painting to fill in and hide some of the more obvious parts, as well as to make it look post-apocalyptic in some scenes. And uh, there aren't a whole lot of new sets for this episode. Those shots at the Tillman facility, uh, you have a lot of reuse of other Star Trek props and set pieces, Well, like in the corridor of the power plant. Yes, I mean, we're only a couple of episodes into the regular series, but the show is still eating up all those startup costs of getting the pilot made and amortizing the cost of those expensive new standing sets. So the original script was much more ambitious in showing a full town and then showing that town in its devastated state. And Michael Piller, Rick Berman, Jerry Taylor came in and said, no, 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 you got to pare this down. We only have room for one location, maybe a couple of interiors, and that's it. Hence the episode that we have today. Now let's turn our focus over back to the crew spotlight. Today we're talking about Roxanne Biggs Dawson as Bolana Torres. Oh, look again closely at that name. The actor we're talking about was born Roxanne Caballero, and way before Star Trek was on their radar for either of them, she and Casey Biggs were married. Then when that marriage ended, Roxanne married Eric Dawson. She took on the double name, later shortened to just Roxanne Dawson. Born in L.A., Roxanne studied music and theater starting in childhood and had quite the stage career going at the same time as TV guest and recurring work started to pick up. It's well known that during her time on Voyager, Roxanne started her directing career as well. We will get to those. And now her credits behind the camera have far outnumbered the ones in front. In recent years, she has directed episodes of the spy thriller The Americans, Penny Dreadful, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Bates Motel, and the recent Apple TV adaptation of Foundation. And let's meet our guest stars. On the unnamed planet at the center of today's story, we meet a handful of locals. There's Turla, played by Joel Polis. He's a frequent TV guest star, everything from Seinfeld to the Invisible Man series from 2000, plus Boston Legal and T.J. Hooker, so there's your double dose of Shatner connections. He was even in a couple of episodes of Beyond Belief Factor Fiction, so we're pretty sure Alan owes us a buck. If any of those missed you, though, you almost certainly caught Joel in John Carpenter's 1982 film, The Thing. Nicholas Sorovi plays McCall, another actor with a wide range of TV guest roles. Nicholas is from L.A., and after serving in Vietnam, he went to the Juilliard School for acting while on the G.I. Bill. In addition to his on-camera resume, Nicholas has an extensive theater background and was nominated for a Jeff Award in Chicago for his role in Much Ado About Nothing. Finally, the boy Latika is played by Brady Bloom. He got his start with a guest role on Doogie Howser, and soon after, he had a recurring spot on Chris Elliott's Get a Life. 
He had a big enough role in Dumb and Dumber that he was back for the sequel, Dumb and Dumber 2, and for a few years he was Disney's voice of Christopher Robin in a number of Winnie the Pooh TV shorts and games for Disney. For all three guest stars, this is their only Star Trek appearance. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant. A child will be here to scream at you shortly. Don't worry, it's totally normal. Prologue. As Voyager continues its journey back towards the Alpha Quadrant, a very restless Tom Paris hands over his console to the next duty officer and is now officially off-duty. He desperately tries to coax Harry Kim to join him on a double date with the Delaney sisters. Tom is worried that everyone on Voyager is getting paired off and there will be no one left to date, even though Harry hopes that his special someone back home will wait for him. Suddenly, Kess is stirred from sleep at the very same time Tuvok reports that Voyager has been affected by the leading edge of a shockwave emanating from a nearby Red Dwarf system. With only minor damage to the hull and all systems operational, Tuvok's sensors discover that debris in the system are registering differentially charged polaric ions. In short, a massive explosion occurred. Neelix is unfamiliar with this region of space, so it is up to Voyager to investigate. Upon reaching the planet... Kess appears on the bridge confirming what Tuvok's sensors have discovered about the surface, that all vegetation and life has been destroyed. And even though the atmosphere is flooded with polaric radiation, it is safe enough for Janeway, Balana, Tuvok, and Paris to beam down and investigate. However, once they materialize on the surface, all they discover are the charred remains and ruin of that city. Act 1 After materializing on the planet, Janeway and her team use their tricorders and discover that the polaric ion energy that powered this planet also caused its destruction, leaving behind temporal rifts in the wake of the explosion. Back on Voyager, Kess fights through tears trying to explain what she saw to Neelix, images of the people who burned in the explosion. Strangely, Neelix isn't convinced that her empathetic or telepathic abilities are connected. Back on the surface, Tom discovers a timepiece hidden in the rubble and is whisked away to a different but similar space, full of life, bustle, and more importantly, live people. Just as quickly, he snapped back to this dark, charred, cold truth of what may have happened. Knowing that these subspace fractures may risk the safety of the away team, Janeway orders their immediate beam out, but is caught in an explosion of light and finds herself standing next to Tom amidst the lively hustle and bustle of what was the town square, and not entirely unnoticed as their presence is made by the shrieking of a young boy pointing at them, calling them demons. The local magistrate hustles him along as Janeway and Paris try to blend into their new surroundings to figure out what happened to them. Tom bumps into a local merchant whose shop displays the exact same timepiece he held moments earlier, and based on its current date, he and Janeway have traveled a day backwards in time. Act 2 Back on Voyager, Harry and Bellana brief Chakotay and Tuvok as to how the captain and Tom were thrown back in time. Harry's magneton scan diagram indicates that they were displaced by the narrow end of a subspace fracture created by the explosion. The only way to find them now is if Janeway does as Tuvok believes she would, create a subspace beacon for them to locate through a crack in one of the subspace fractures from a location that they have been in the past. In sickbay, Kess is scanned by the doctor who makes a startling revelation. Her brain isn't in his medical files. 
Neither are her medical records. In fact, by his outward display of frustration and loathing for the sheer lack of respect shown to him as the only physician on this ship, Kess and Neelix admit that they, and a handful of other new arrivals, haven't checked in with him for a proper evaluation. But for now, the doctor brusquely tells Kess, whose species he knows nothing about, that her brain may be simply maturing, and to drink plenty of fluids. After finding some incredibly brightly colored and strangely inconspicuous clothes, Janeway and Paris try to piece together what happened. She orders him to discuss their predicament with no one, or warn any of the locals about the explosion that will happen hours from now. To do so would be a violation of the Prime Directive. As Tom bemoans the entirety of his father's lectures about the Prime Directive, they both spot that same obnoxious little boy who questions them about their business. Tom scares him off, and Janeway tries to science out their situation, knowing that the mystery stems from wherever the city draws their polaric energy. Tracing the conduits outside the city into a nearby power plant, Janeway and Paris are swept up in a supposed peaceful demonstration, which turns violent, causing the captain to get clubbed in the head by a security guard. Both she and Tom were torn away by a few of the protesters who retreated from the skirmish. On Voyager, Harry and Bellana show Chakotay and Tuvok their solution to finding their missing friends, a polaric generator that could open up a new fracture in subspace once they locate where the captain and Tom have been. However, it has to be used at the right time and sparingly, as it will do more harm to subspace than good. As they prepare to return to the planet's surface, Kess and Neelix arrive and she insists to go down with them. Back on the planet, Janeway and Paris are now in hiding along with several of the protesters. Their leader, McColl, demands to know who they are and if his plans are at risk. And after several attempts at deflecting his questions, Janeway and Tom are held at gunpoint. Act 3. Upon returning to the ruined remains of the Plaza Square, Kess remarks that she can still feel the essences of the people as if they were there. However, the rest of the team inform Chakotay that the subspace damage is beginning to dissipate, making it increasingly harder to find Janeway in Paris. Harry has good news, though. He has found some type of traceable signal. Back in the past, Janeway and Paris are being held prisoner and are under constant interrogation by McCool and his fellow protesters. He doesn't believe their story about being from Kalto province, nor Janeway's evasions as to her name, her hair color, or any other personal details. However... Her interrogation takes a sudden turn as one of McColl's men, Turla, bursts into the room with a very familiar-looking blonde-haired boy who screeches to them that they aren't who they appear to be, blowing what thinly-veiled covered story Janeway had left. In the present, Harry did in fact find something. Two damaged comm badges that were broadcasting an automated signal. The captain and Tom were in fact in this room at one time a day before Harry found these comm badges, which along with the rest of their equipment, were stripped from them after a lengthy line of questioning, which resulted in Janeway confessing that both she and Tom were from the future and are trying to prevent a catastrophe that would likely destroy the planet. Meanwhile, Tom makes a connection with the boy, Latika, whose father is a local journalist and is simply following in his footsteps. McCull is unimpressed and has Janeway, Tom, and Latika rounded up as they prepare to return to the power plant with some specialized equipment. It is at this time when the subspace generator in the future is activated and Chakotay tries to make contact through the subspace fracture. The comm badges are left behind in the same place where Harry would eventually find them. Act 4. 
As they make their way to the power plant, Tom is perplexed as to why Janeway ignored her earlier order about the Prime Directive, how they weren't supposed to influence the outcome of this society. Janeway believes it was because of them that certain naturally occurring historical elements were changed based on their interference with the protesters' original plan, whatever it may have been, and forcing McCall to change his timetable, which coincided with the frozen date immortalized on the timepiece that Paris found at the start of this whole affair. Meanwhile, after limited success on the planet and losing the signal strength of Captain Janeway and Tom as the subspace fractures dissipate and disappear, Balana believes that finding the flashpoint of the explosion, the epicenter of the temporal event itself, may be their only chance. Tuvok believes that Captain Janeway would have tried to prevent the explosion, but Chakotay trusts his instincts and orders his away team back to the planet to try the generator one last time. Back in the past, McColl orders Janeway to get past the security guards at the plant's checkpoint, but she calls his bluff and tells the guard she's being held hostage and that McCall and his men are here to assault the plant. Shots are immediately fired between McCall's men and the guards, and as Latika is about to be cut down, Tom shields him and takes the shot instead. Leaving Tom in Latika's care, Janeway arms herself and pursues McCall deeper into the corridors of the plant, where at gunpoint, she orders him to hand over all his equipment, thinking she's preventing the explosion in the process. Just then, a rift opens up in subspace, and Janeway realizes that it's the energy from the polaric generator that reacts with the conduits from the power plant and that causes the explosion in the future. Using her phaser to close the rift, both she and Harry increase their respective power streams against each other to the point where the rift collapses and explodes. As Voyager continues its journey back towards the Alpha Quadrant, a very restless Tom Paris hands over his console to the next duty officer and is now officially off-duty. He desperately tries to coax Harry Kim to join him on a double date with the Delaney sisters. Tom is worried that everyone on Voyager is pairing off and there will be no one left to date, even though Harry hopes that his special someone back home will wait for him. Suddenly, Kess arrives on the bridge, concerned about a deadly explosion on a nearby planet. When she's shown that nothing catastrophic has happened, she leaves with Neelix as Voyager sails forth towards home. The end. The end? What, what do you mean the end? I, I counted Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, and then the end. Mm-hmm. What, I, isn't there an Act 5? I thought there was. I was looking for one. I really was. Yeah? <laughs> I must have looked hard enough. I don't know. What, what, what happened there? It's only four acts. I guess something changed. <laughs> something changed. All right. So this is something that we do want to let people know uh, early on, because depending on how you're watching with us, you might be watching on streaming, you might be watching on DVD. And there was indeed a change in the middle of the first season that broke the five-act structure, turned it into a four-act structure uh, to meet the network demands at the time. So if you're watching it now... You're probably seeing those early episodes cut to, I mean, no content is actually cut out of it, but they sort of remove what would be a dramatic fade uh, in order to bring in a commercial. So the shows don't have a fifth act. They, mm-hmm. they have sometimes just a very long fourth act <laughs> or, <laughs> or they're just padding on acts one, two, and three, and then you get to the resolution in act four. Well, certainly I think that like in, in my synopses, the four acts were far longer than a five-act structure, especially, say, one of those, usually like in Acts 3 or 4, say, in Deep Space Nine, were mm-hmm. really short. Like, yeah. Really short. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
sometimes they're just like five minutes of, of airtime and you can get it down to a paragraph or two. Right. Um, but yeah, so uh, if you're wondering why there's no Act 5, there you go. So retroactively, we're, uh, we're fixing this the way that they did on the show itself. Retro, and, retro act fively. Yeah, oh, no. that was good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the show. <laughs> that was cringy. Um, yeah. I'll get into cringy. Let's, get, let's start with okay. cringy. Okay. Let's, so, let's start off with cringe. Yeah. The Delaney sisters. Yeah. So let me ask you something, John. I'm going to ask you okay. this. I want to ask our listeners this. What's cringier, Tom's enthusiasm about dating twins with Harry? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm kind of treating it as like a Noah's Ark type of pairing off, as he says. Yeah. Or that twin sisters actually serve. I'm not sure if they're twins. I'm assuming they're twins. <laughs> that twin sisters or sisters are serving mm-hmm. on the same ship. See, that that is a weird question, that, that second part, because, well, first of all, we don't even know if they're human. Maybe they're not human. Maybe they're from a species of only twins. So they can only serve together. Mm -hmm. I'll just, I'll retcon that right now. Okay. That'll be in in my head canon. I don't know. But it is strange because usually you don't do that. You you don't have twins or, or, you know, direct family members serving together like that. Although on the Enterprise D, you know, you did have families. Right. But you didn't necessarily have, not that we saw anyway, you know, brothers, sister, twins, that kind of thing. Little, yeah, it's it's a little out of the ordinary. Um, But yeah, man, just right out of the gate. Tom Paris looking for a date and Harry is not. Right. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're going for some levity. They're going for like a cute bit at the beginning. I, I get why they're doing that in the show, but it's odd. I mean, they've only been out for a couple of weeks as far as our airtime goes. And they're really setting up Tom to be this like partier. And uh, okay, do we give Tom the benefit of the doubt that they are seventy thousand light years from home, um, or uh, you know, dude? I look, Harry. I think Harry is right too, but it's also a little soon. You yeah, know? yeah. It just seems but, that Tom's kind of forcing the point you know and all he really wants out of harry is a wingman it's he's like the sitcom bro dude right you know yeah 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 you know like in wings you know in that sitcom of the 90s same era as as voyager Mm -hmm. joe hackett was the straight arrow like harry and brian hackett his brother was the lothario like tom yeah and always got into these wacky adventures because they were always trying to or at least brian was always trying to pursue a date of some kind with someone Right. See, and, and that's what's weird about it is because it, it's not out of the question that on a ship that's that far away from home with no really good sense of getting back other than just that that is their mission. Yeah, probably going to be looking for a date on board. But yeah. it's also really soon and he is really like they are playing up this 90s sitcom version of that. And he's got yeah. five girls back home <laughs> waiting for him. Right, they'll, so they, yeah. they'll be seventy-five years older when he gets there, and so will he. That's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> um, why is Neelix gaslighting Cass about her own feelings? Yeah, that's a little. I, I, you know, I mentioned it last time that I'm a little weirded out by some of the Cass Neelix interaction already. Right. I mean, yeah. in Caretaker, they alluded that she's has telepathic abilities that the caretakers caretaking may have suppressed. Mm-hmm. So it's only natural that something like this may have occurred. I'm just surprised that if Kess is kind of like uh, Neelix's, you know, 
partner and and he risked his life to go save him, her from the the Kazon. Why doesn't he like not know this about her? Why does he not care? Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. Um moving on to the rubble uh, uh-huh. because he had to put some type of I don't know, I found it funny. Tom picks up this giant clock. You know, it's like Dr. Theopolis but without the coolness, right? Yeah. And it just has this <laughs> it has like, you know, the countdown on. He's like, "Look at this timepiece." I'm like, I, I, it's like it, it, it has a timepiece. I was thinking of something more techno babbly instead of calling it a timepiece, but I don't know. I'm just yeah. maybe I'm projecting too much. Well, we were going to talk about the techno babble in a minute, uh, for sure. Probably a few times in this episode. See, the funny thing to me was, okay, yeah, it's very clearly a chronometer. It's very right. clearly, uh, you know, that that's what it is. And yet it's alien, and he doesn't know exactly what the increments are. And I, I think about, I, I always go back to uh, one of my favorite moments in Lost in Space, and it's Professor John Robinson. He knows everything. And they come across, you know, it's totally alien technology, and it's literally like a round platform with a little dome on top, and they're looking at it. They have no idea what it is. And Professor Robinson just goes, looks like some sort of matter transfer device. You have no idea, <laughs> Professor John Robinson, what that thing is. You're just you're saying that because that's what's in the script. I'm on to you. Oh, <laughs> you know? you're not fooling anyone. No, Doctor Smith is on to you and John. <laughs> so, speaking of gaslighting another character, all right. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. You're, here's like a that old rule in Hollywood, you know, especially if you want to like do dramas, you, no kids, no pets. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so here's a kid in this episode. And he's literally like the only person that saw Tom and Janeway kind of materialize out of thin air and start screaming at him. And then yeah. the cop walks up. He's like, go back to your comic books and your sugary foods, kid. And, you know, yeah. get out of here. You bother me. What's up with that? Yeah. I, well, first of all, just leave it to the screaming kid to ruin everything. That That's, you know, that yeah. it's it's the, uh, like, like you brought up, the Hollywood rule. You know, you don't work with kids. But no, that, this kid is actually good. We'll, we'll get into that. But there is something in that moment and about all of this early interaction that is it's just very funny because it's a very vintage sci-fi kind of feel uh, in their first encounter with the locals i mean they all have the similar outfits they all have these like headbands with these little points on the end of them Mm -hmm. and then uh, on the the police you know this like weird symbol in the middle of their uh chest on the uniforms it just it all felt very Buck Rogers in that same kind of shorthand way of telegraphing. This is alien. Look how alien they are. You know, he even says to the kid, like, uh, go have a confection bar. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I guess jump like, sticks haven't been invented yet for the script. Yeah. 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 Right. 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 So I, by the way, totally a phrase I'm going to try to introduce into the lexicon, you know, uh, <laughs> have a confection bar, <laughs> have a confection bar. So it just, it was so on the nose. It was really funny to me me because it felt it felt cheap for star trek yeah you know it it felt yeah it felt not very creative for star trek although if you look really closely at those cosplay cosplay costumes i don't know i'm thinking (laughs) cosplay because i don't know like why people haven't cosplayed this before yeah really pictures but they're like there are corsets Mm-hmm. inside the structure of those costumes. They're not just like pajamas, you know. Yeah, or, no, it was you know, interesting like, to see the backs. That yeah. The, that they, they were really fitted, you know. But, um, yeah, they, they, it was just, it was strange. They kind of went it, for you, it in a weird you, you way. Could tell, you could tell where they cut the budget. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. But where they didn't cut the budget, though, is mm-hmm. Harry's. Did you did you notice the way that he has used his hand? Like he displayed it. It's like check out my magneton graphic. <laughs> it was really like Vanna. It was like Vanna White like flipping a letter. Like and today's yeah. letter is. But yeah, the magneton graphic was cool. It had pulsing lights and all that kind of stuff. And right. it was one of those. Right. Um, now you see, Timmy. Yeah. This is what happens yes. when polaric energy explodes and destroys everything. Yeah, so right. it was one of those kind of things. Very good moment. I was laughing the entire scene where Picardo does no wrong, in my opinion. Picardo yeah. does yeah. zero wrong. And just the way he's so put off by, why doesn't anyone tell me, the guy that's supposed to like basically <laughs> cure everybody, nothing ever? Right, <laughs> right. Yes. Your brain is not on fire. <laughs> He's so good. I'm on the voyage he's, of the damned. <laughs> he, he's wonderful. Yeah, I mean his his uh, lack of bedside manner again, it, just fully on display. And I, I love him ending just like drink plenty of fluids because yeah, it's just always good advice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Fine. <laughs> Fine. Oh, and, and uh, cutting back to the planet, I, I was amused by this idea of picturing Tom Paris's father every year preaching the Prime Directive. Like like the the holiday speech is about right. the prime directive. You know, it's like at Thanksgiving. You don't go around the table and say what you're thankful for. You talk about how many civilizations you didn't interact with because you were protecting the prime directive. Thankful for the prime directive. Now we can eat. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that scene where they had the skirmish between the protesters and the guards. Yeah. I rewinded that a couple times. And I think that that's actually Catherine taking that stunt. Ooh. And wow. it could have gone so wrong because the uppercut that the baton gave that person, I think it was Catherine, but that was yeah. pretty, that was close. And if it was like maybe an inch closer, wow. that could have smacked her right in the nose. That could have gone really wrong, really fast. Wow. Well done stun and uh, well done makeup on her when you cut back uh, when she's got that gash on her head, you know. Yeah. And it's, you know, small demonstration. Again, this is not a big budget episode. You don't have hundreds of extras. Small demonstration gets brutal very fast. Yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, they did not waste any time on that. And I, I do like in the interrogation, you know, she's just so good. I mean, there's so much good to say about uh, Captain Janeway. I've never seen a Calton with your hair color. Well, now you have. Right? Like, she's just, she could deliver a snarky badass line like that, like, practically nobody can. And she was really good at, like, closing off leading questions. Yes. Yes. Right? Her art yeah. of deflection was on point. Magnificent. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's something for all of you technobabalists out there. I didn't know this, John. I don't know mm-hmm. if you knew this. I don't know if anyone in the audience knew this at the time. Did you know that the comm badge self-activates when the casing is destroyed? Is this new? Are these like personal black boxes for like officers that were incapacitated or were killed? Right. I, I kind of thought the same thing. It's an interesting idea. And then I thought about, well, okay, on an Apple Watch, you got fall detection. Yeah. So if you if you fall down, it starts to call emergency services unless you turn that off. So makes sense that a comm badge might 
do a similar thing. So good good for them coming up with that bit of uh, technology. And, man, we're, we're going to talk about Tuvok and his role in this show versus Kess's role in this show. But, you know, he sees the destroyed com badges and everybody's kind of worried about those and just assuming that, uh, that Janeway and mm-hmm. Harris are dead because of that. And he delivers this line perfectly. Further speculation serves no purpose. I suggest we search for other tangible evidence. Yeah. Yes, Tuvok. Yes. I love you. I love the dedication to facts. That was a so- Really nice bit of acting. Just he snapped that line. Perfect. Perfect. He was perfect. Perfect. And uh, speaking of science, the the other end of the spectrum here, uh, McCall and his men display an alarming disinterest in science (laughs) when it comes to time travelers with cool equipment. I I mean, look, they may not believe the story, but but they pretty much just cut off every end of investigation. They're just, they're not even willing to hear anything or ask good questions. Um, You know, look, if I'm in their shoes, the sabotage of the power plant can wait guys really just got to the bottom of this you know it was like being interrogated by like bella oxmix and jojo cracko like what is this what is this some kind of fancy heater what is this yeah don't don't touch that that'll blow out the entire wall oh (laughs) come on man yeah yeah it's kind of funny yeah uh i really like Cass being this interesting kind of spiritual representation in this Mm -hmm. episode where everything's so focused on tech and how mm-hmm. to tech the tech in order to solve the situation. Yeah. But then Cass is walking around like, I know where they are if I can just have people recognize the fact that I can do this empathy thing. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Like, and the only person that's kind of paying attention to her in the slightest is Chakotay because Chakotay yeah. is kind of alluded to to being kind of like a spiritualist mm-hmm. or at least turn into a bird or something. You know, like Tom yeah. Paris yeah. said yeah. in Caretaker, right? Yeah. yeah. Speaking of cringe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also like the the detail of when they tore off the comm badges um, and kind of like threw them on the table and kind of like that same, they're paired off uh, and melted together, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the detail of when they lost the comm badges to when Harry found them was really nicely done. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Agreed. You know what? Uh, because that that happens around that time that you know we're we're seeing the two parallel stories happen: the past and the present. That scene at the top of Act Four, I, there was some really weird blocking there, where they're they're all Janeway and Paris are being escorted to the power plant, and they're all just walking along together. And it could be a very short focus on the, or I guess a very long focus on that lens, but everybody looks a little bit compressed. And they're just walking around talking about, well, you know, the prime directive says this and blah, blah, blah. And I just wonder, where, <laughs> again, were the captors just not interested in anything that might be enlightening, illuminating? Yeah, shut up. Their... Keep walking. I don't yeah. know. It's, it's very odd. Very enough odd. talk. Enough talk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you mentioned before kind of like the the Buck Rogers-esque, Flash Gordon-esque style of uh, costuming in this. But didn't you really dig? I kind of dug like the whole like atomic symbol motif with like the maybe the Polaric Energy logo at Mm -hmm. the center of that. Or maybe it's a corporate brand. Right. Yeah. Oh, it could be. I totally want to wear that like (laughs) T-shirt around the convention. Somebody needs to make it. That'd be kind of cool. Human Shield Tom Paris. Very heroic of him. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm well. Uh, yeah, 
I, I, although, so Human Shield, Tom Perry. Okay, heroic of him. I'm still trying to walk through the logic in McCall's plan. So like, you better get us into this power plant because Turla has a gun pointed at the boy. Yeah. That is a terrible plan. Dun, because, dun, dun. because if the shooting starts, <laughs> which it does, right. they should be shooting at the guards who also have guns. Uh-huh. But instead, what do you see? You see Turla turn and like point the gun at the kid. It's like, no, dude, <laughs> the guards are in front of you. What is wrong? Uh, they're they're not good criminals. Tom went at the score all. points with the Delaney sisters. That's all he wanted oh, to do. Okay, now the logic makes sense. Now I get it. Yeah, yeah. but the thing is, is that he'll never be use, able to use that story because he got <laughs> retconned. It, yeah, it, we, we forget. You know, by the yeah. time retconning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so here's what I like about the whole Kess and Tuvok scenario. Mm-hmm. Kess is the spiritual kind of divining rod in this whole situation. But I mm-hmm. love how Tuvok is cornered to essentially saying, I got nothing left. I guess the best case scenario works. Huh. You know? Okay. Yeah. Right. He goes, I can't logic myself out of this situation. It was kind of like when Spock says, I don't like guessing. And then McCoy said, this is in Star Trek four. Yeah. Where it's like, I'm not sanguine to guessing. And then McCoy said, we, we would trust your guess more than somebody else's facts. Well, but nobody knows Kess's guesses yet. Kess's guesses? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Nobody knows them yet. Really. Right. That's so I, we're, we're going to come back to that. I, okay. I got questions about Kess. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. here's a good idea. Mm-hmm. You're in a power plant with high energy conduits pulsating through that, con- uh, that, that power plant, and then people start firing energy beams at each other at the maximum intensity. Yeah, don't fire this gun with a conventional projectile. Right. But here, we'll take this extremely powerful energy weapon. Right. So (laughs) the episode gets to this point where everything's kind of like techno babbled out. The logic holds. And all of a sudden, I got no other course of action but to fire this high energy weapon. It's like shooting a flamethrower in a gasoline factory. Right. (laughs) But that's all I have left. That's the only way I'm going to be able to get out of this situation. Right. Okay, so this is a little kind of tomorrow is yesterday. Yeah, I'm throwing a lot, a lot of TOS references mm-hmm. today. But when the shockwave blew them backwards into the past, yeah, how did it, that snap them out of the temporal causality? Yeah, I, I techno babble too. Oh, yeah, you did. Right? You did. Because yeah. everything is in a loop. So if it blew them back into the past, they would just return to the point where they would discover the planet. They just keep doing the same thing. Yeah. So what blew them out of the causality loop? Hmm. Oh, man. Uh, it, some, somebody got one of the writers on the phone. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. and, and by the, speaking of writing, you know, uh, again, we, we come back to we replay that scene on the bridge. Can Tom Paris just pull his friend Harry away from bridge duty like that? Can you just say, ah, come on, come on, we're going on a date. This is what we're doing. Harry's like, no, I have work to do. Right. <laughs> just like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm basically telling you what you can do now. It's, yeah, Tom... Just come on. But dude, it's the Delaney cool sisters. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I feel like we're going to hear more about them. Oh, one last thing. Mm-hmm. So are we to believe now that like kind of like Guinan at the end of yesterday's Enterprise, can she sense through space time? I, well, okay. That's just one more mystery about Cass. I guess we'll have to get into that. All you have to do is change the colors on those shirts, and some of this could pass for an episode of Logan's Run, Cool Hovercraft sold separately. 
get right back to time and again in a moment. But first, a word from this week's sponsor, Trade Coffee. Norman, I learned something very interesting today, mm. and that's that 90% of coffee from the grocery store is stale. I believe it. I, <laughs> I, right. I believe it. Well, see, look, look, being new to coffee, relatively new and not a gourmet, right? I did not realize this, that, you know, you just walk in, you pick something off the shelf and, and you go like, oh, this is what coffee is supposed to be. But no, 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 that seriously needs an upgrade. So how about this? How about instead of rebuying the same old stale coffee, let trade coffee send you something that is freshly roasted that you're literally guaranteed to love. Just thinking about that makes me salivate. Fresh, roasted coffee, like really fresh. I'll tell you what, there is nothing better than cracking open freshly ground coffee and taking a whiff from the bag, that first whiff. Oh, oh yeah. Hey, I, look, ever since Trade Coffee started sending coffee, my mail smells better than it ever has. Ooh, well... That's an incentive, <laughs> yeah. if anything. Right, right there. But, yeah. you know, it's true that, that Trade sells the freshest roasted and ethically sourced beans from America's best independent roasters. They ship free to you. They'll make your mail smell amazing. <laughs> and yes. as often as you like, whole or ground. So you can get it whole bean. You can get it ground to however you do it, drip coffee, French press, etc. Now, we're not gourmets, but we like coffee. And if you're a coffee nerd or you just want just better tasting, fresher coffee, Trades Real Coffee Experts taste test over 400 roasts and use technology to match you to your ideal coffee based on your preferences and your brewing method. So that's what I did. I went to drinktrade.com slash mission log. I took the quiz. You can do it too to get started. And Trade Coffee guarantees that you'll love your first bag or they will replace it for free. A trade has been featured in New York Times, Wired, GQ. They have delivered over 5 million bags of coffee so far. That's a lot of coffee. I feel like at least, well, a few of those are mine and yours, Norman. Their subscription is no hassle. You can skip shipments. You can change the frequency of coffee deliveries that you get. Or look, you can cancel at any time although I don't know why you would. So for our listeners, right now, Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com slash mission log. Remember to get started. You take their quiz at drinktrade.com slash mission log. Start your journey to the perfect cup. That's drinktrade.com slash mission log for 20 bucks off your first three bags. John, I don't know if you know about security, especially security in line with certain systems. Ooh, well, I care very much about security, and I care very much about the people around me caring about security. Well, this is what Collide can do for you. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Hey, I, I'm a Mac user, and I'm a Slack user. Perfect. Does that make us slackers or mackers? <laughs> either one. Either, we're, we're good with either one. Collide is perfect for organizations with slackers and mackers that care deeply <laughs> about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become simply unusable. Yeah, nobody wants that. So instead of frustrating your employees, don't do that. 
Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Visit collide.com slash mission log and sign up today. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. Enter your email when prompted to receive your free Collide gift bundle after the trial activation. Now at Collide, they know that end users are IT admins' most significant yet untapped resources, and they are the key to solving the most challenging to fix security issues, including instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text, two-factor backup codes, and teaching end users how to store them securely, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history, and nobody wants that. Those evil browser extensions. And those are just some of the many use cases not solved by locking down devices. So you can try Collide with all of its features on an unlimited number of devices for free. For 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. So, John, I love coming up with titles for our discussion points because most of them have to do with formatting in the way that Man From U.N.C.L.E. formats their titles for their episodes. <laughs> Very true. Somewhere in the Delta Quadrant. That's how every episode starts. Right. And now. then you have the something, something, something affair. So let's talk about something. Yeah. It's a softball, you know, just to get us started, to start spitballing here. The yeah. Temporal Paradox Affair. It fits. It works. Right? Yep. Okay. Yep. So yeah. there's a lot of discussion about the Prime Directive, and we'll get into that in a second, but... Is there a temporal prime directive loophole? I mean, is there a chicken or egg scenario that Janeway's talking about here where we can't influence this society because of the prime directive? Little did we know and now we do that we caused this whole situation to accelerate in the first place. So now we can disregard the prime directive. I mean, how does that work? Well, how it works is however the writers decided it will work this time. Because you have to wonder, if this were a Groundhog Day kind of situation, you know, the the whole thing is you you have to change just enough elements until you change the right element to break the cycle. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, well, okay, even if they prevented that, what actually got them back to the original position, it's still, it's just kind of a mess, you know, to to actually try to think it through. But even with all the technobabble, they they laid it out to at least a somewhat convincing end. My argument here would just be that as long as we're talking prime directive, Janeway makes a very good case for why she tells the truth. But you could even, look, you can start out just by saying that the minute that they beam down, they are violating the prime directive. They they are part of, I mean, look, they don't send a probe down. They don't do any research to figure out, oh, you know what we really need? We need rainbow costumes and headbands with little points on them. We need, they don't even know the name of the planet. (laughs) <laughs> we, which, you know, we as viewers don't even know the name of the planet at any point in any of this. So they have already interfered. They And and yes, you can make the argument to say that, well, okay, maybe, maybe there is some urgency to their situation. Um, uh, but regardless, they're, they're in it. They know, okay, at this point. Now, of course, they didn't know that they were going to encounter people. That was, you know, that was not part of it. But you are 
beaming down to a planet that has been devastated, it seems like you want to do your research first before you actually go down there. But here's the thing. Even if we're applying Prime Directive to this, there comes a time in every time travel story where the traveler has to admit who they really are mm-hmm. and why they're there. That's just the law on how these kinds of stories are written. And I I kind of appreciate how it plays out here, and I appreciate that Janeway and Paris continue the discussion, bookended, of course, by Janeway's explanation of the Prime Directive to Kess at the end. But I I don't know if this episode, shoot, I don't want to skip too far ahead. I don't know if this episode really gets into the nuances of the prime directive here yeah janeway janeway makes the decision at a certain point but honestly she could have made that decision at any point along the way because they're there and they know what's going to happen and that's true that's true you know it's it's an interesting thing that the prime directive is part of this overall part of the story but i never really felt that it was the reason why they were making the choices that they were making, right? To try and re, yeah. try, try and right the wrongs of what was happening. Because I did the thing that Doc Brown did in, you know, um, in his lab in Back to the Future Two, where he found, you know, he had the chalkboard and he said, "This is us, and this is where time went askew," and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I did that, and it takes me all the way back to. How does one travel back in time a day before they even arrive at the scene of the event that they went down to investigate that sent them back in time? <laughs> right. right? Right. That just, right. I know I'm stuck on this and listeners, I'm sorry, but try and make sense of that. You know, we're dealing with Star Trek here. We're talking about a show that is steeped in time travel. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Well, well. Look. So, uh, it uh, man. Does it depend on how we look at time travel? We look at time travel. Like the Hulk. Time travel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the adventures. Right. <laughs> well, well. Look. If we're saying that it's time travel in the sense that there is one linear time and they keep arriving at different points within that linear time, a day in the past or the quote unquote present, or are they splitting off essentially the multiverse uh, every time they make a change? And there, there is one version of this where Voyager never arrived in the Delta Quadrant. So those people with their rainbow costumes and pointy headbands, none of this ever happens. Are you saying you know, that we're or, already watching a new timeline? We could be. Oh, gosh. We could be. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, oh, everybody. Oh, my gosh. All right. <laughs> okay. Blew my mind. Or... Right, right. So, uh, but yeah, but they do arrive after the point that they had already done something. So you really have to figure out at what point the time travel really occurred. It's, oh, <laughs> it's a mess. It, it, it's. A I mess. wish they had a yeah, sun yeah. just a slingshot around the old-fashioned way, you know? The old-fashioned way yeah. of time travel. That's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah, I, I think we're going to come back to this as far as just like any lip service given to the Prime Directive. I'm not, I'm not totally sold that that was anything other than just kind of window dressing. It, it was business for uh, Janeway and Paris to talk about. Mm-hmm. It was something to put a button on the episode. Um, and, you know, Neelix seems, oh, that, that that's a good policy. Well, yes, it is. But I, it really doesn't apply here. Yeah. It, it was their own presence there that changed it. So, yeah, I, I don't think we can really apply it. But I know that's... Well, let's talk about... Yeah, that was a little yeah. bit more lighthearted and fun. But I think that there's a deeper 
moral meaning, unmoral meaning. We're, we're going to get to those. A, a deeper observation <laughs> here, a deeper discussion point here, where it's okay. And we alluded to it in our observations, but it's it's Kess. Yeah, uh, I I think I might be at a different place than you are about Kess, and and I want to preface it by saying that you know I like the character and I like the portrayal of the character, but I don't really know that I know what we're doing with Kess here. Mm-hmm. So the Acampa are new to us, and when I say us, I mean. Starfleet, you know, and, and I, I almost get the feeling like this is a placeholder in the show Bible. Like here we have a woman who has these interesting traits based on her species. And I, as much as I appreciate Kess's demeanor and her curiosity, there is so much to like there. But in this episode, I feel like layering of this kind of ill-defined special power it feels like a bit much and and i I feel like it's almost a a placeholder for well we don't have deanna troy on board Mm -hmm. so what do we do (laughs) what do we do without that what do we do without somebody to just walk into a situation and say well this feels weird well you know are, are are you sure you're looking at every possibility because i feel like they should be over here you know to your point Neelix was inappropriately dismissive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 this dialogue, that this exchange that they have when she says my ancestors were said to have unusual mental abilities, and he just comes over and says, no one believes those stories. Yeah. She says, I always have. First of all, that is a different discussion yeah. about whether or not they had those mental abilities. He just says, well, nobody believes them. Well, th- this is very bizarre dialogue. Right. It was a very strange way to uh, to have them discuss this. And then Neelix goes on talking about like the legends of his own people. Like, okay, you have legends. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily apply to everybody, but it's very dismissive from somebody that you claim to be like your heart of hearts, your love of your life, yeah. right? You know, the person that you risked not only your life, but everyone else that you just I, met, yeah. you know, with the Kazan on that planet, you know? So it was yeah. a, a little weird, but I like where they were going with Kess in this episode. Okay, to, to, tell me why and how. Okay, yeah. So I like it because... Here and and this is this came actually from me trying to break down the episode. There is so much tech involved with Voyager, and I knew that kind of going in. I heard that mm-hmm. this is like the the science fans, the techno babblist fans show because we're talking about things like you know multiphasic graviton this or you know <laughs> protonic this you know or uh, the energy you know all the stuff that's going on yeah. and i really had to pay attention to say that uh you know clearly in my recap because they're very tongue twistery what i like yeah. about kes in this episode is she's a palate cleanser for all of that mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. and i i know that we have had our issues in the past with spirituality and spiritual beings in star trek mm-hmm. that's from earlier episodes of a different series <laughs> but in this case there is so much tech being pushed to the forefront of trying to find janeway and tom that they aren't even entertaining the possibility of another solution and this is what I love about and not saying that Kess is the perfect solution I'm saying that she is an alternate solution because there is a point where Tuvok said, I feel it is my duty to point out there's absolutely no logical reason to believe Kess is correct. 
However, since I have no alternative course of action to recommend at this time, I suggest we proceed with what Kess was suggesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I like. I, we, at least he's seeing yeah. the option that there is an option because they've exhausted all their technological options. I, I, I Yes. So, uh, okay, I get that. But here's the thing. I keep wondering if they wouldn't have gotten to that place, you, you know, simply by doing the scientific methodological research that they were doing anyway you know they're following where the the strongest sense of these particles are they're they're figuring out logically where they would have gone so and it's at a certain point it's tuvok fighting Bolana and uh harry kim about their assumptions saying like no no no, they would have gone to the source of these things that's where we should be looking so kess is part of the picture she's part of the decision making there and i i yeah I, like you i appreciate that tuvok at least sees that he recognizes the limits of his own abilities or his own assumptions in this case mm-hmm. but i still don't know if they wouldn't have gotten there even if they didn't have Cass along for the ride. Well, I mean, we have to deal with you know? the mechanics of the show. So, sure. you know, I sure. think that what I like about her is that she's the gut instinct. You know, there's not a lot that mm-hmm. we've seen so far in the episodes that we've seen, you know, Caretaker and Parallax and now this, where people just follow their gut, right? You know, yeah. there's there was something that... Um, you know, between Kirk and Spock, where they always had these conversations about sometimes you just have to follow your gut. Sometimes you just have to believe that that this is the right thing to do. You know, it's not based on logic. It's based, based on the right thing to do. Like, it's the mm-hmm. only option you have. So trust your instincts. Which is very much Janeway's position when she's being interrogated. Right. So, <laughs> And it's kind of great to see her come to that moment of realization. I just like that yeah. there's, like, the the opposing force. You know, like, you have this irresistible mm-hmm. object, you know, and you have this immovable force. Well, Kess's needs are kind of like the irresistible. Like, look at me. I have, you know, I have value I'm an alien, so why can't I have mm-hmm. value? I mean, even the doctor says, I don't know anything about you because our species isn't on file. I don't know what you can do. You know, you, yeah. could, you could move, the, you could blink this ship back home for all we know, but we don't know. So you kind of have to put your, like, you have to put your faith in her hands, knowing that she believes that she's valuable, so why not let her prove it? Yeah. And, and look, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I I like the character and... I don't disagree with you that she is valuable and she should be there. There's something very strange. Maybe it's because we're so early in the run of Voyager. There was something so strange where it felt like, okay, we're putting our crew in peril. Here's this very complicated scientific uh, problem for them to solve. And I get it. We could just technobabble it to death, and and that would still be very unsatisfying if that's all it is, is technobabble. It felt like shades of Deanna Troy, who I also love, but in the worst use of Deanna Troy, mm. just like walking into a room saying, well, well, this feels weird, <laughs> you know? Right. Well, yeah, yeah, it is weird because look around. It's just weird. There are a bunch of people who died here. Yeah. So it felt like a uh, a strange early use of the character and i'm sure that the further along we'll go we'll be able to explore those ideas of you know what are her special insights or powers that are floating around it's odd in a way that you know here we are a couple of regular episodes in and she's already part of an away mission yeah 
<laughs> you know, just, just by sheer force of will. Like, no, no, I have to go. Oh, okay, well, I guess we can't say no. <laughs> yeah, you know? I, I guess is that yeah. where kind of like the Starfleet protocol isn't really that enforced anymore? Yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder how many other people who went through the academy are sort of lining up outside the transporter room saying, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I'm i on this ship, too. I'd, I'd like to see that's a lower decks episode right there. <laughs> that is. There you go. I didn't expect to be able to compare Kiss to Bruce Willis, but let's face it, they both see dead people. Well, it's about that time that we do it again. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what I'm talking about. It's time that we wrap up this week's episode time and again, and we tell you if we think the episode holds up, and we discuss the morals, meanings, messages contained therein, if there are any. And if there aren't, well, that's fine, too. We'll figure out what we took away from the episode. So, Norman, looking at time and again, again, Mm -hmm. maybe for the last time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in summary how do you feel about it does does the episode hold up for you and and again you know just to preface particularly if there's anybody new listening to mission log um this part this question does it hold up that is a very vaguely worded question because we might bring all sorts of different perspectives as to why we think it holds up or not so it's never just a singular question with a singular answer so uh you go ahead so about a year ago i was living in an airbnb and i thought i would just catch up on voyager because i've never watched voyager before and i remember watching this episode and was pretty much immediately like put off by the funky candy corn costumes and just <laughs> candy corn those are the exactly. colors you nailed and, like it. the yes. tonnage yes. The, the, the literal like per second tonnage of techno babble that was from Oof. you know b- between balana and, and harry kim yeah and janeway up to a point but that was before I gave it the mission log perspective and the mission log uh, mm. filter of how we look at an episode and how we process the episode. Mm. And to be honest with you, I actually find this episode to be more fascinating now. It's still clunky, but I uh-huh. find it way more interesting to watch in the process that we watch these episodes now for mission log. Oh. So maybe... I don't know, the second or third time I watched it, I, I found that there was some pretty nuanced character building in here. And mm. for me, I found Kess to be a very fascinating study in what I just mentioned in the previous segment, who is simply just this really fascinating, empathetic outsider who's just trying to see a completely different, non-technological way of seeing things. Like, say, if you broke down this episode's dialogue, 90% of it was very heavily technobabbly based or technology-based. But then here yeah. comes Kess with this wonderful, refreshing spirituality and effervescence of just trying to see something that has nothing to do with a chip or a circuit. Mm-hmm. So I really, really like that. Now, production-wise, yeah, I, yeah, we can always make fun of these costumes, you know, like the Buck Rogers costumes, <laughs> the candy corn costumes, whatever. Yes. No, but I, I thought yeah. that the, uh, the the Polaric Energy Corridor, the building, I thought that was really well done. I thought the charred ruins were well done. For a bottled episode that was trying to save on money, I thought that was all really well done. But my favorite thing, though, was the way that Les blocked out the edits when Tom was going back and forth between the the past and the present and how it didn't really mm-hmm. shift uh, foreground to background and he kind of like stayed in frame. 
I thought that was really well done. I thought that the time travel, except for the end, was very interesting. I thought that the end was really convoluted when you you know put it on paper, do the algebra of it. Uh But okay, so just to leave a question out there, I like the episode. It has its flaws. It's a little clunky, but answer me this, people out there. You know, send us an email (laughs) or you know put it up on Facebook or Twitter. Which time travel methodology are you watching this through? Back to the Future, mm-hmm. Doctor Who, or The Avengers? Because hmm. they all apply to time travel and solving the end of this episode differently, depending on which methodology you use. Huh. How about you, John? All right. All right. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's pretty – yeah, that's cool. I look forward to hearing what people write back to us and say. Um, I, yeah, so I'm a little less warmed up to this episode than you are, but I did still find uh, some of the same value in it that you did. So on the surface, uh, it's an interesting story about a couple of crew being trapped on another planet's past and – trying to pass for locals, that that's fun already, and trying not to violate the prime directive and trying to save themselves and save others. All of that works, but I feel like it just gets so bogged down under the weight of its own techno babble, and the story becomes about teching the tech and not about who the characters are when given a chance, who are really good. You know, I I think that's one of the strengths so far of Voyager is that um, they've laid out the characters and the character relationships in a very enticing way. So looking at the positive, like, okay, we have this great team up of Janeway in Paris, and we're just in episode three. You know, last week we got the Janeway and Torres team up. Great way to start expressing who these characters are. And we get a very clear distinction about who Janeway is. Not only is she the smartest person in the room, you know, let's not forget that, but she is not afraid to get her hands dirty. You think back to the beginning of TNG, how we learned that the captain can't go on away missions most of the time. And then, you know, backstage, you've got Sir Patrick and others on the production crew who are requesting, and I quote what these were called the sex and shooting memos for the series lead. Got to get him some action. Captain Picard needs to take on some action. Right away, Janeway is in the thick of it, physically and mentally, and it is fantastic. This is a big break from TNG. It is a big break from the early days of DS9. So I really appreciated all of that. And I love a good paradox. And I generally get pretty excited about time travel plots, depending. Mm -hmm. They're not overused, overplayed too much. And I really enjoy the old back to the future style of fading from history, (laughs) you know. And even just the setup here about being able to change the immediate future. See also Rod Serling's uh, The Time Element which is from the Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse show, 1958. It is a great, great story about a man who uh, finds himself on December 6th, 1941, with some very important information about the immediate future. Yes. Mm. So that's what I thought of watching this. I'm kind of surprised that this one is not a Brandon Braga story. Felt like it. Because this, yeah, yeah, it really does. It's got a thing that he likes. But I think it suffers from being bumped up against Parallax, where we already had a similar kind of cause and effect problem with messing up timelines. So I I think placement-wise, 
this episode suffers yeah. a bit. I was thinking that exact same thing because Janeway in Parallax said that sometimes the effect precedes yep. the cause. And I'm like, precedes and the that's cause. Yeah. kind of like what's happening here. Like the effect precedes the cause. So, yeah. 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 So, you know, I agree with you that the character stuff is really strong. I think a lot of the interesting, well, that, that'll come up here in a moment. A lot of the interesting stuff gets buried, but because of its proximity to parallax, it kind of falls into the same category as parallax for me. It's fine. There's nothing particularly wrong with it as an episode, but at the end, it'll be forgettable. What I will remember about parallax will be the relationships between the characters. It won't be how they solved a problem that there were two voyagers in a rift in space. Like all of that will be gone out of my head in a few weeks, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I'll remember Janeway and Torres in a shuttle. And I'll remember uh, speaking of Kess and all the good qualities of Kess. I'll remember Kess treating the doctor with curiosity and interest as a being rather than as a technological tool. And with dignity. And with dignity, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what this episode does do and continues to do very well for the show is reveal who the characters are. But unfortunately, the story just doesn't work. So for me, it's very marginal. It, it, It kind of tips into the side of not holding up, even though so much of the good character stuff does hold up. If you are 51% in favor of it holding up, I may be 49% where, you know, with it doesn't hold up. But I alluded to what does this mean about morals, meanings, messages? And I think that's part of the problem here is because we were almost on the verge of an ecological disaster discussion. Mm-hmm. We were almost there to talk about protesting forms of energy you know it it would have been a perfectly star trek idea to explore a planet using a dangerous power source and the two sides trying to determine what's safe what's the appropriate course of action and i we were almost led through it with this that we don't really know we we know that this power source is potentially dangerous because we had that reference to it in the romulan war but we actually don't know what's happening on this planet. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what side is doing what with this power source. So we meet people who are the rebels against the the big bad power company, but we actually don't know. Are they the ones who are going to screw it up? You know, this all would have been a fascinating conversation to have, but we never actually got there. And this was an episode to really have a conversation about the prime directive I mean, imagine you're walking into a situation where you think people are about to blow themselves up and and countless innocent lives along with them. What do you do? Is the principle behind the prime directive to not interfere with something like that? Or is it actually there to prevent you from shaping the course of their social or intellectual or spiritual development? Mm -hmm. You know, the prime directive is right. But does it always take every situation into account? And how can it, we though? I, well, right. Yeah. It, it can. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a guiding principle. You know, unlike visiting Talos Four, it doesn't get you the death penalty if you violate it. <laughs> <That's true. Yeah. laughs> so, so we didn't really get that conversation here. It became more of a technicality just about Janeway revealing who they are. Mm-hmm. So that was a disappointment that we didn't get there in terms of real discussion points but that said i hope we get there with 
future episodes. Yeah. So uh, so how about you? Well, I, I like how you phrased that we almost got there, but we didn't, because I think that everyone, mark your calendar, because this is the first time that we're doing Voyager where we're going to put on the writer's hat. I'm putting on the writer's hat, John. Oh, hey, watch out. Right. Watch out. <laughs> so I think that it would have been more impactful if the protesters didn't act the way that they did. They didn't feel sympathetic. They didn't feel like they had a cause. They just felt like they were thuggish and they were a means to sweat Janeway and, and, and Tom uh, to facilitate whatever nefarious ends that they had for this power plant. But it would have been really interesting to see Janeway and Tom throw the prime directive to the side because they're like, if we don't help them, then we're going to be the cause of this entire explosion because we didn't help them do this particular thing. And they're mm-hmm. right, uh, Janeway's right at the edge of you know, techno babbling the reason why they she could have stopped this energy explosion from happening and then Balana punches through with that device. Right? Right at mm-hmm. the moment mm-hmm. when Janeway is about to say, No, I'm we're almost there. And then you as yeah. the audience were like, Oh my God, they're gonna save this planet. And then yeah. no. The reason why it exploded is because they tried to save their friends from saving the planet, right? Right. So right. you have this yeah. uh, this incredible emotional gut punch twist at the end, where I think that this needed to land. It didn't land there, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's just because it was very sanitary. It was a very paint by numbers type of episode. So that's that's all beside the point, though. And I've really stolen a lot of my morals, meanings, and messages, and I've kind of peppered it throughout the course of this. You know, our observations and our discussion points, but I do really think that we're still kind of shaking down, shaking out what these, uh, what Voyager's kind of their, their story is right now. So they're in a lot of like Mm -hmm. major morals, meanings and messages, you know, not like where we were with deep space nine only a couple weeks ago. Right. So, but I do like the fact that in this wonderful technological marvel of steel and circuit and, biomimetic gel packs or whatever they're all bioneural gel packs <laughs> imagine if you're in a park the most gorgeously crafted industrial park in the world and all you want to do is sit down and eat your lunch and stare at a tree mm. that's kess to me in this episode mm. where the entirety of this episode falls solely in the hands of the technobabalists and the scientists and the the techies and using all the equipment to solve the problem, there is a refreshing outlet that, you know what, sometimes you just have to follow your instincts. And you just have to stand up for them, no matter what Neelix tells you how he feels about it, because that to me still is a little bit off-putting. But I do like that Kess just simply followed her instincts. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Phage. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel.
so it looks like everything that happened in this episode never happened. I'll keep it on file just in case. End transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.